The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. I'm joined now by a um, a multi award winning author. He has just released his latest book, A Guest at the Feast. The author is Colin Tobin, and Colin, it is. Given the way you open the book, it's too good an, op- an opportunity not to emulate your opening and begin the interview in the same vein. So let's start with your balls. Yes. How are they? Well, I was walking along the street and I promised when I had cancer that I was not going to write about it. I was For once, I was just going to go quiet on something because I hate those books and articles, my battle with cancer, I defeated cancer. And... Um, I thought I wouldn't write it. And then I was walking down the street and it just for no reason came into my head a sentence. It all started with my balls. <laughs> and once I got that sentence, I went home and I wrote it down. Now, having written that down, I thought, well, I'd better go on now to see what, what else is going, what is going to, you know, I just t- tell the whole story basically from beginning to end, you know, and um, end with the fact that the, uh, the period of two balls, the stereo period, has ended and we're now in mono with one ball and the future is going to be like that. And uh, that, is, that is the future. I mean, that's the way it is. And, the Beatles uh, did some of their best work in mono. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Said for <laughs> Who am I? And um, yeah, so, so the, um, then the whole question was, can you with a book like this started off with a long cancer piece would it not be the end of the book you know people think it's the last thing you want especially around Christmas anyway well, we decided to go because the first really the first sentence if you get that you can't just leave it there you no, can't just, I nearly, no you can't I nearly wrote you know and so yeah so that's the first sentence of the book I'm intrigued by you use that thing of your dislike of the term because you use it in the piece itself of that thing of battling cancer and and fighting cancer your experience of cancer was one of sort of stoic surrender until it went away yeah the um, the oncologist used to come in in the morning and say the, that I was always awake I suppose I was but I wasn't battling. I was just lying there, basically. And there is an extraordinary passivity occurs with chemo where it moves from passivity then further into a sort of an anguish passivity. But battle, like battle suggests that you're somehow, I'm going to defeat this cancer. It's not like that. The doctors are battling. The kitchen staff are doing a lot of work. The nurses, you have no idea. And, uh, so, I mean, an oncology nurse has to know so much. And there's always there's something intrinsically pejorative about it when somebody then dies of cancer because it's it's as if they have somehow lost or not had enough will. That's the really nasty part of it. Someone said that somehow or other it's your fault that you are not doing well, that you're not battling enough. I think that's awful and I think it must be really, you know, upsetting. And uh, therefore, I'm against the word battle. But yeah, you just lie on a sofa. It's basically about your relationship. Your closest relationship is to the sofa. And uh, you can really ruin a good sofa over a good long chemo season. And how is your health now? I'm good, I'm fine. I mean, every six months you go back in. And oddly enough, you know, the people talk about trigger and you go back in, it's lovely to see some of the nurses, I'm now four and a half years, so... Like, go back in, some of the nurses are still there. It's great to see them. And, and also, it's great for them, maybe, to see there's someone at least coming in with a smile on his face, you know. And you, they, put you into a, they put you into a tunnel and you have to sort of, you know, it's a, it's a scan. A sca- not a scam, but a scan. And they put you in and, and they check your insides. This is MRI, is that what it is? I suppose it is, yeah. Um, Do you and, find them claustrophobic? No, I don't, I don't go in for that. I mean, you just, if, if you start minding things like that, you just do it and get over it and get on with things. But if you start, yeah, it's totally, it is really, I mean, you really are like, um, you think you'll never get out of this alive, but 
just don't think like that and just get on with, um, you know, this is necessary and you just do it for the day. You talked about the choice about whether or not to include the cancer as one of the pieces within the book. You talked about whether or not to open with it as, as uh, the lead piece in the book. The eclecticism of the pieces that you've chosen, there are your thoughts on three respective popes. There's your experience with the Supreme Court and the um, uh, battle both for freedom of speech and publication and, and freedom of, of homosexual relationships and all that kind of stuff. How do you decide what goes into a book of this nature? Um, it's not hard because what you do is you read a lot of stuff and if anything begins to bore you, and I wrote it, you know, and I'm pretty narcissistic. So um, like a lot of writers and journalists, you know. So, for example, there was a piece I wrote um, in, let me think, um, 94, 90, well, 95, about the whole Eamon Casey bishops um, and Father Smith, from Eamon Casey to Father Smith, Brendan Smith. And I wrote that for The New Yorker, and it's a long piece, and it's written for an audience who wouldn't know anything to start with. And I, re- I always thought this, this would work in a book. And it didn't because it was too much detail that had now become dated. And it, it wasn't, it didn't have a bigger, a big enough sweep about Irish Catholicism and the change that was going on. And how I knew not to put it in was I read it and thought, boring, boring, <laughs> it's not going into the book. And there were, a, there were other pieces just think halfway through reading this thinking like this just hasn't survived. You know, t- 20 years later, 10 years later, five years later, it's not and working. It hasn't survived survey. because your view has changed or your perception has changed or simply the piece has been caught in aspect and the yeah, times the have changed. the piece was written for its own moment and it, it might have been fine in its own moment but it won't do now and somehow or other, it's not hard to judge that. I promise you because you just go, no, and, and don't try it. You know, if, if it's not working for you, it'll work for no one. If you can be bored by your own work, can you be entertained by it? <laughs> no, not really. Can you, uh, you no, can't read your you, own you, stuff you, and you say can, this is can, wonderful. You can just tolerate it and think, no, this, this might work with this, put this there. But no, I think, look, if you started admiring your own work and laughing at your own jokes, I think you would really have to seek treatment for a narcissism gone beyond its own, its, you know, its own actual needs. What about the thing of writing fiction versus non-fiction? Because I always thought that one of the great advantages of fiction is that you can ventilate your personal demons through an ostensible third party without having to risk giving of yourself sincerely. Do you enjoy the catharsis of being honest about things to do with your own life? Um, Say with when I was writing the novel Brooklyn, there's a priest and he's a very good man. And in a way, he isn't religious. He just organises lives for emigrants. And he looks after people in New York who need help. And people kept saying to me, I always thought he was going to do something creepy. And I said, no, he wasn't going to do that. There, there were a lot of priests who worked like that. And also, for me to put that in now is jumping on a bandwagon, is saying, you know, this is the time to do that. You know, let's kick them. But one of the reasons I can do that so freely is that I've had the time to kick them in essays and articles. So the three pieces on the Pope are pretty unforgiving. But I wouldn't do that in a novel. If I was writing a a cardinal or even a Pope, I wouldn't write a Pope, but if I was writing a Pope in a novel, I would try and see things from his side. I would try and work out some angle that would be much more forgiving or ambiguous than I would do in an article. So in a way... Part of the function of articles is to get the poison out of yourself <laughs> so that you can have, uh, you can in a way create a more pure space in a novel. And are you very analytical in, in the, the work that you do? Because I've always wondered, given how much time you have spent in academia, 
does does analysis creep into the creation or do you say park all of that and get it out and get it written? Um, there's a deadline of some sort and say with doing the stuff I did on Pope Francis, you know, I read every, the thing to do with those long pieces is to write, is to read every single book and look at every single possible piece of information and then see if you can build a story from that. And the story I was building is that when nobody seemed to be talking about this Pope was Argentine. He was head of the Jesuits in Argentina during the years of the disappearances. So what did he do in those years? How come the mothers, the great heroines who went into the square and said, where are our children? How come they don't speak to him or want him near them? Like, how did that happen? That this smiling figure who we all see is so sweet, how did he make enemies of those women? And so I began to work and I went to, you know, every single... There's, there's, um, he gave testimony. It's, it's only in Spanish, but I, I can understand Spanish. I mean, I can speak Spanish. So six hours on YouTube of him as a, as a Jesuit defending himself for what he might, might or might not have done at the time of the disappearances. It's electric stuff. You, I mean, he's on camera for six hours giving testimony. And, um, electric why? Because he's a different man. He, he's, he, he, there's no smiling figure. He's, being, he's absolutely, he, he's, he's authoritative. He's, he's, he's a formidable arguer and fiercely sort of um, factual. And, and you wouldn't, it's someone you would not mess with. He's a much more sort of powerful Jesuit figure than the figure we saw, the figure we see. And yes, it's, the so, avuncular it's, uncle it's, that it's, is yes, now portrayed. It's, it's, so it's fascinating to watch um, what, what he was like at that time. And he's defending himself against very serious charges. And in, and in my view, he's innocent, oddly enough, of those charges. I mean, I'm, you know, that he, he didn't set about um, handing over two Jesuits to be imprisoned by the junta. He just didn't do that. He did other things which were not, I mean, but, but that's a very grave charge. And in my view, there's no evidence for it. So it's important, just, you know, don't make demon. You know, your job is to try and give the reader as much information as possible. But you've got to be careful sometimes that it'd be so easy to, to jump on a bandwagon about him in, in, in that way. One final thing, in putting this together, because you, you talked about the reading back on your own stuff and deciding that which was boring and that which wasn't and how you decide to include it. When you read back, some of this harks back to the late 70s, early 80s, particularly some of the stuff relating to um, your time in McGill and, and the uh, legal cases of the Supreme Court and all the rest of it. As you reflected on that, do you see Ireland as having changed significantly? And if so, is it for the better? I think it's certainly for the better. Um, the idea, nobody's really paid enough attention, I think, to those judgments in the gay, in the David Norris case, given in the Supreme Court. And um, the fact that um, one of the judges who gave the judgment, or at least was one of the one of the agreeing judges, in other words, he didn't give a judgment, he had just agreed, was later made Chief Justice. And of course, he had many good qualities as a judge, but I think Tom O'Higgins' judgment, and it's not just me thinks this, Seamus Henshey, one of the other judges of the Supreme Court, in his judgment said, you cannot, as a Supreme Court judge, bring in your own evidence that has not been tested in court and offer it as fact in your judgment. And Tom O'Higgins went on and on about gay people spreading disease. And he, he, there was no evidence, he didn't, like, there was no source for what he was saying. It was pure prejudice. And so um, David Norris lost 3-2 in the Supreme Court, but it, it wasn't a, one of the court's best moments. And um, of course, it won in the European Court of Human Rights. 
But certainly sitting, I sat through some of it and it was creepy and the court was empty. And there was a moment where a priest was trying to talk about subtleties in the, in the, in the Bible and in church teaching that would allow the possibility of two men, you know, that it, that it wouldn't have to be illegal. Um, and he just used the word we. In respect of gay people. Ah, he did, yeah. And the, the barrister for the state, for the Irish state, just turned and said, Father, did you say we? Excuse me, Father, did you say we? And I, he just sat there thinking, uh, I mean, this was the Irish state, this was 1979, and I was gay and I was 24 years old, and you just think, so this is the way the state will speak. And um, I, later I met the priest who said he had done it deliberately. He said it was fine, it was fine with him. I said, did you not get into terrible trouble? He said, no, no, it was fine. I was academic priest. I could do that sort of thing. He was a but brave said, I academic it, I priest it, nonetheless. I, I did it to wind them up, you know. And uh, <laughs> I, 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 I was amazed by that. Cause I, didn't, I didn't know a priest could do that. But um, certainly, if you just think of how freely people live um, now and also the way the country is becoming multicultural and tolerant in all sorts of different ways, I, I mean, there's no going back on all that. The book covers a multitude of different essays uh, across b- b- between its covers. It is by Colm Tobin. It is called A Guest at the Feast. Colm, great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Anton. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.